Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. In 2008, two scholars published a book titled Retaking Rationality, an effort to make a case for cost-benefit analysis regulation from a progressive perspective. Cost-benefit analysis has ever, at least since its uh, origins in, in the early Reagan administration, has been identified primarily with the political right and with critics of regulation. These two scholars made a case for rationality as a nonpartisan tool of good government. Again, that book was published in 2008. And now this year, its authors return with a new book titled Reviving Rationality, Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of the Environment and Our Health. The authors are Michael Livermore and Richard Rivez. Ricky Rivez is the Lawrence King Professor of Law at New York University, where he founded the Institute for Policy Integrity. And Mike Livermore is the Edward F. Howery Professor of Law at the University of Virginia and the founding director of the Institute for Policy Integrity. Mike, Ricky, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So as you describe at the outset of the book, this book is itself a follow-up to an earlier and, and very influential and significant book. Maybe before we talk about the new book, we'll start with the old one. Can you just remind our readers, most of whom will be familiar with the book, but some won't, um, what was Retaking Rationality? What was your argument, and who are you arguing to or for? So in Retaking Rationality, our goal was to intervene in a decades-long conversation about the role of cost-benefit analysis in regulatory policymaking at the federal level. And the dynamics of that discussion were kind of, as you outlined, broadly progressives opposed cost-benefit analysis, uh, folks who are more skeptical about regulation endorsed cost-benefit analysis. And this was kind of a stable dynamic. Um, ever since Ronald Reagan really put regulatory review and cost-benefit analysis at the heart of the U.S. administrative state. And our goal um, was to argue that this, although the dynamic was stable, it wasn't necessary, and in a lot of ways it didn't make a lot of sense, um, especially the progressive position. Uh, there were a lot of bad consequences um, from progressives uh, uh, failing to engaged in the conversation about how cost-benefit analysis should be done. And it wasn't particularly effective because there was a bipartisan consensus within the mainstream of both political parties that cost-benefit analysis and regulatory review were good things and ought to be done, and that that had carried through both Democratic and uh, or Republican and Democratic presidential administrations. Yeah, and we felt that uh, progressive groups had ceded the ground on the development of methodologies for cost-benefit analysis to the trade associations for regulated industry and to academics with an anti-regulatory bent. Uh, just by not participating in the conversations, they didn't influence them. And our goal in the book was to try to level the playing field um, try to basically empower um, voices that had not been heard in these methodological discussions to be able to be heard and to be heard effectively. And the founding of policy integrity to which you alluded uh, was connected to that. In some sense, it was the first sequel to the book. I mean, this is the second sequel to the book. So we thought, well, through policy integrity, we could first um, develop a scholarship that would um, 
lead to a more balanced approach to cost benefit analysis, uh, kind of use kind of on our kind of think tank side of the uh, of the ledger. And then um, as an advocacy organization, we would both intervene in regulatory proceedings on our own behalf and also hopefully um, be a source of capacity building for organizations that would be interested in having that kind of capacity built. I mean, eventually we actually added a fourth goal to policy integrity, which was training our students uh, to be to go out there and do this stuff as regulators, as policymakers, as uh, government officials. And in order to do that, Mike and I, 10 years ago, two years after policy integrity's founding, uh, started um, the regulatory policy clinic, um, where our students basically work representing policy integrity in um, uh, comments in major notice and comment rulemakings and in amicus briefs when um, administrations um, of both parties actually decide that they're not wholly persuaded by our comments. Well, it's certainly been uh, influential work and an influential institute, as you said, both in the regulatory process, but also in personnel. My colleague here at George Mason, Caroline Seacott, uh, is a former colleague of yours up at the Institute. And as I've said uh, many times in our programs, uh, you've created a really important institution that does a lot of good work. And, and I really encourage all of our listeners to look it up, look at the website and, and follow your work. You know, on the, as, as Mike put it a moment ago, um, when you wrote the first book, there was an interesting sort of stasis or equilibrium in the debate. Um, even in 2008, it's kind of interesting to think about in hindsight, because um, President Clinton, of course, when he took office in 1993, he didn't do away altogether with the OIRA framework that the Reagan and Bush administrations had instituted. And I should correct what I said earlier. Cost-benefit analysis didn't originate with the Reagan administration, of course. It's much older than that. Um, what I meant was that the, the sort of the formal structure embodied first by Reagan's executive orders and the ones now that carry to this day were at least instituted by the Reagan administration. When President Clinton took office, there was great pressure on him to largely do away with that framework, and he didn't. I was just looking back today for separate reasons as I'm thinking about what might come in a, a Biden administration. We're recording this on Tuesday, November 10th, so just a week after um, the presidential election. I went back not to President Clinton's order, which is still on the books, but to the statement he made uh, when he signed that order in, in September of 1993. Uh, he said, this executive order will provide a way to get rid of useless, outdated, and unnecessary regulations that are outdated, obsolete, and expensive and bad for business. But he made clear that we can't re reject all regulations. Many of them do a lot of good things. They protect workers in the workplace, shoppers in the grocery stores, children opening new toys. And so even in 1993, President Clinton was reframing the debate. And of course, Sally Katzen and others who worked in their administration continue to do so. But just to maybe close the segment on, on your first book, why do you suppose that even 15 years after the beginning of President Clinton's administration, why was there so much resistance uh, to cost-benefit analysis that, to the extent that it required you to, to really take that stand and, and I think move the debate in a, in a much different direction? I think in part it was lack of understanding. Um, because cost-benefit analysis um, as a major tool of um, executive branch review of, of, of agency action did emerge um, with the Reagan executive order, even though there are, as you pointed out, Adam, antecedents, um, 
but it's mostly associated with the Reagan executive order. It's associated with a time with a rhetoric of deregulation. Ronald Reagan ran for president um, on a uh, deregulatory platform and got elected and um, made clear that he was going to carry out the mandate that the people had given him. So it was associated with this deregulatory, with this, this, this re- de- de- deregulatory origin. And I think that over time, um, that view became solidified in, in a big segment of, um, of the community of, um, of interest groups. I mean, I had this experience in, in the mid nineties, I was on the EPA science advisory boards, environmental economics advisory committee. And we were the group that did the peer review on EPA's first guidelines on the preparation of cost benefit analyses. And as you know, these, these, um, committees are set up under the federal advisory committee act. So anyone can show up at the meetings to testify, to present arguments and so on. And we had a lot of groups that came to testify before us. Um, and they were all um, essentially trade associations for regulated industry. And they came and they made very professional presentations with fancy uh, DC law firms and so on, and no environmental group ever came. And, and, if I, and that's what actually first got me interested in the kind of political dynamics of this issue. Why weren't they coming to see us? And then years later, I was giving, this is in the first book, I was giving uh, a talk at uh, the American Enterprise Institute. I was commenting on some other book, on a, uh, on a book, and, and I pointed this out. And someone raised her hand at the back of the room, and it was Sally Katzen, who I had actually not met yet. I mean, now she's a colleague of mine at NYU Law School. And she said, Ricky's experience on the, on the EPA Science Advisory Board was exactly my experience at OIRA. I wanted to get interest groups engaged in these methodological discussions and industry groups that have been in my office every single day. I said I was willing to talk to them, though not every single day. Uh, but uh, progressive groups never came. And then I thought, wow, you know, maybe they thought the EPA Science Advisory Board was like the backwater of government and didn't matter, although in some ways we did, did matter some. But everyone knew OIRA was important. And I think there was sort of this view that this was a methodology that they didn't like and participating in these methodological discussions would somehow or other validate it. And they okay. didn't want to do that. But I think eventually the tide turned. And one of the things we explore in the second book is how a lot of the attacks on cost benefit analysis have now really come from the Trump administration. have really come from the other side. And, uh, and progressive groups have actually been happy to make arguments on regulatory proceedings, whatever they think of the, overall merits of the methodology, they've actually engaged and engaged in productive ways in the regulatory proceedings. Uh, we'll yeah, get to so, that in just a moment, but Mike, do you want to have anything to add? Yeah. So, and I think this is, this, this story is largely right that, that Ricky's telling that there was a kind of a historical reason for progressive opposition to cost benefit analysis, given its association with the Reagan administration. Um, but I do think that there on both the left and the right, actually, there are folks who aren't particularly inclined toward the kind of fundamental project cost-benefit analysis, which is recognizing trade-offs in government policymaking. And so there are some folks on the kind of libertarian right who would say that there are just certain property rights or just absolutes and shouldn't be traded against you know, environmental quality or something like that um, or uh, 
or, or inequality or, or whatever, that there are just certain rights that are inviolable. And on the left, there are folks who are uncomfortable with making trade-offs um, in the context of protecting environmental quality or public health or whatever else. So, so there is a, a historical element that helps explain why it was the left who was uh, more skeptical about cost-benefit analysis. But as again, as Ricky mentioned, it's now folks on the right who are more skeptical of cost-benefit analysis, and it's because they recognize now that it can be used in a anti-regulatory direction, but not necessarily so. And so um, there's kind of this underlying dynamic um, of folks who are uncomfortable with trade-offs maybe being willing to go along with the methodology if it ends up pointing in the direction that they like, but then if it doesn't, they're, they're skeptical. Yeah. yeah, I think there was actually an advance in science that made uh, cost-benefit um, more necessary. Um, you know, in the early days of the environmental laws, like in the 70s and so on, there was a view that a lot of these pollutants had thresholds and that the goal of regulation should be to uh, get us below the threshold, so there'd be like no harm. Um, and that seemed like, you know, potentially a laudable goal if we could get there and so on. But eventually, like by the 80s and 90s, it became clear science had evolved in the direction that pointed clearly to the fact that for most pollutants, uh, and we certainly treat carcinogens this way, and we treat um, other significant pollutants, including the pollutants um, regulated by the National Amateur Quality Standards of the Clean Air Act, um, they've come to be treated as no threshold contaminants because the science uh, pushes in that direction. And, and, and so zero is not an option. So, you know, you can't really say, okay, we're going to get rid of all pollution. We're going to go back to like zero pollution across the board, economy-wide for everything. Now, everyone understands that. So once that's not an option, we really are in the world of trade-offs. The trade-offs are very explicit. We can get more of this, but maybe less of that. To what extent do we do it? And I think it makes some comparison of consequences essentially inevitable. Um, the courts have also pushed in this direction. We explored it in the book. Um, um, you know, by 2015, by the time of the court's decision in Michigan with EPA, it almost looks like ambiguous statutes may, you never know when uh, cost-benefit requirements might get attached to them. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. And, 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 and considering consequences becomes, becomes more important and more compelling. It becomes essentially part of the, uh, standard analysis under the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and so all of these developments, the science, the judicial developments, the, uh, developments, um, you know, the judicial statute interpretation developments and the developments on, um, APA review, I think have pushed cost-benefit analysis to the forefront in a way that it wasn't um, in its infancy early in the Reagan administration, probably even early in the Clinton administration. It's in a different place now. You mentioned your NYU colleague, Sally Katzen. Um, I'll just I ought to say I'm very proud to say that when she's in Washington, she's been one of the most active participants in the Gray Center's programs, and she's one of our distinguished uh, senior fellows. I'm always grateful for her work here. And I'm not saying that just because she's probably going to be listening into this. Hi, Sally. Uh, but because um, uh, of, of, of her work and expertise has been just invaluable. But that said... With the name Seaboyd and Gray on the center's door, it would be a little bit coy of me to not, you know, suggest, you know, not admit that cost-benefit analysis beginning in the Reagan era definitely did have a, 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 a we'll say, a, a, a skeptical bent uh, towards regulation, and so thus your book, Retaking Rationality, 
and I think it's safe to say that rationality was retaken. It did become, I mean, even not just after the Clinton years, but after your book and into the Obama years, uh, it became a central feature of the Obama administration's approach to, uh, to, to, to regulation. And thus sort of was contested sometimes from both the right and the left. Uh, nobody can say that the Obama administration didn't care about cost-benefit analysis. So now you find yourself not retaking rationality, but reviving rationality. Uh, you begin your book by telling a story over the course of a few chapters of what happened in the Obama administration and in the Trump administration. But I suppose I should just ask, why did you need to revive it? Right. So if we pick up at the beginning of the uh, Obama administration, which is right after retaking rationality was published, um, what we see is that the Obama administration um, achieves an important synthesis. And we can't take credit for this, of course, but it's along the lines of what we anticipated or, or hoped for in the first book, which is to merge um, respect for cost-benefit analysis and attention to, to cost-benefit analysis, attention to evidence, expertise, and so on, um, with a progressive regulatory agenda on a variety of different fronts in the, uh, with respect to the environment, public health, with respect to consumers, of course, we were facing the aftermath of a major financial crisis, and so um, the uh, administration was regulating in the financial sector. Um, and this goes on for eight years. Uh, Cass Sunstein was the OIRA administrator. He was well-known as an advocate of cost-benefit analysis going back several decades. Um, and ultimately, it was, fairly, it was successful. The, the administration managed its own internal dynamics, managed the constituencies of the Democratic Party achieved a substantial number of regulatory uh, successes over its eight years. And during this time, interestingly, the Republican Party and leaders in the Republican Party, in any case, had a choice to either say, look, they're using cost benefit analysis. We like cost benefit analysis. And so uh, we're, we're, as long as that's the path, we're happy to uh, endorse the general project, even if we might disagree on the specifics. Or to kind of go into full tilt oppositional mode. And um, of course, the Republican Party is diverse and non-monolithic, but the, the mainstream followed the, the full tilt oppositional mode. And part of that was to start to use rhetoric around um, the administration's regulations that, in essence, moved away from cost-benefit analysis. The claim wasn't, oh, these are rules that have more costs than benefits. That was pretty much not the case. Instead, they started to talk about a war on coal, or they started to talk about a tsunami, a regulatory tsunami, or they started to, and this is very key, was to focus on jobs. And this was in the immediate, you know, when, when um, unemployment was quite high. And so job-killing regulations became a kind of mantra of opposition to the Obama administration, that they were engaging in a bunch of job-killing regulations. And this emphasis on jobs Essentially, it wasn't a, I don't know if it was an explicit attempt, but the, the result was to take focus off careful weighing of costs and benefits and to focus on one exclusive dimension was what will the effects on employment be? Uh, that's actually, a, you know, we may return to this topic. It's one that is very interesting. Of course, we're back into a time of high unemployment, so this issue may come back under the radar screen. Last year, it seemed like no one cared about this anymore. Right. Essentially, a full <laughs> right. employment economy, the impact on jobs was less of an issue. Right. Now yeah, we would have put a chapter in if we had known. <laughs> uh, but, um, but in any case, it's, uh, 
so that's the dynamic that kind of rolls us into the Trump administration. I think it's important to recognize that Trump is an aberration as a president in so many ways, but uh, he was drawn from a well of rhetoric that had actually been dug over the prior eight years, or at least the six years of the, of the latter parts of the Obama administration, um, amongst other figures in the party. And so when he talked about a war on coal or he talked about job killing regulation, he, he didn't come up with these ideas. He presented them in the kind of most crass formulation possible, but they were ideas that had been circulating for some time. Yeah, in fact, I mean, uh, you know, I detected a major shift uh, between the 2008 presidential election, um, which took place right after the book was published. Um, you know, in both cases, we wrote these books before the elections. Actually, the first book came out a few months before the election. This book is coming out the same month as the election. Um, but the 2008 campaign, uh, Barack Obama and John McCain, um, we're both basically running on platforms of um, addressing climate change, um, you know, cap and trade schemes and so on. There weren't actually very significant differences. And McCain was not running on primarily a deregulatory platform. And there was a significant shift um, in the next four years when it, in, in 2012, when it was the Obama-Romney campaign. Romney very much ran on a kind of this job killing regulation platform. And we actually have this quote from Romney, which I thought was telling, because if there was ever a presidential candidate who should have understood what cost benefit analysis was about, it was Mitt Romney, because, you know, he had basically, you know, worked with economic models in his business uh, job before he went into politics and presumably knew something about uh, uh, uncertainties and the promises and deficiencies of economic modeling. But he said during the 2012 campaign, you know, th this is all like, um, you can't really trust these numbers. Instead of looking at cost benefit analysis, we should make decisions based only on their impact on jobs, which is obviously an irrational position because it would say that if some regulatory intervention would reduce the number of jobs by one, you wouldn't do it. And you wouldn't do it regardless of whether it saved, you know, a hundred lives, a thousand lives or a million lives, that this would be like sort of just a hard constraint. And obviously, I mean, I'm sure that if you present in a hypothetical like that to Romney, he would say, no, I didn't quite mean that. <laughs> but that's what it, that's what it, that's what the campaign slogan implied. And, and then the idea that you couldn't really base Policy making on models because of the uncertainties inherent in models. You know, my feeling was, well, he knew something about this. Um, there are uncertainties inherent in the models that allow people to make predictions about financial markets and make money in financial markets. So this was, you know, kind of a reaction that was motivated by a different political calculus. And then it got worse after that. If you wrote a book before the 2008 election and Obama won that, now you've won, written a book for the 2020 election and Biden's won that. Uh, please give me a heads up before your next book so <laughs> that I can place my bets in the, the political markets accordingly. I want to, I want to circle back at some point and kind of unpack some of the criticism, um, that Republicans were levying at, co at the cost benefit analyses of the Obama administration. But in some ways, they're sort of part and parcel of, as, as you suggested a moment ago, sort of what happened then in the Trump administration. So why don't we walk through the Trump administration's um, uh, actions, 
after his election. And then maybe we'll circle back and, and unpack a few of these things. Uh, so, so President Trump comes into office. And as you said a moment ago, Mike, he builds on the rhetoric, uh, or in some ways a product of the rhetoric that preceded him. So then what does the Trump administration do with respect to cost benefit analysis? Well, uh, part two of the book has like six case studies of mythological decisions that Trump administration has done, has made that are just wholly outside of the domain of plausibility. It's not like they, you know, took a slightly aggressive position on some methodological issue. They just like fell off the ledge of the universe. So, and the book documents that. So the first one is a lot of their early actions did not involve repeals of Obama administration rules. They involved delays. And their first line of attack was the reason for these delays, that these delays uh, are justified by the cost savings to industry of delaying the rules. But they have no negative consequences because the regulatory beneficiaries will get the same benefits eventually. So this is obviously um, an absurd approach, right? I mean, uh, they might get them eventually, but later is not the same as now. There's something as like, you know, something called the um, present discounted value. Also, if you were being symmetrical, uh, there would be no cost savings to industry because industry would be bearing those costs later as well. So uh, <laughs> there either would be no costs and no benefits or... Uh, there would be costs and there would be benefits and they would have to be evaluated. And because these rules were essentially net beneficial and the Trump administration didn't even take the trouble to actually review the cost benefit analysis, it all kind of relied on this, um, on this, um, um, on this approach. Now, you know, um, I can't say that they did a lot of harm in this way because those efforts were essentially all struck down by the courts. Um, on, um, you know, which saw exactly the problem that I mentioned. I mean, it's not exactly a very conceptually difficult problem uh, to understand. Um, they then did various other things um, to basically um, make benefits um, disappear. So, for example, any unquantified benefit they relabeled as being speculative, small, or insignificant. Um, you know, the fact that something is unquantified or unmonetized essentially means that the monetization techniques aren't uh, available to actually assign a dollar value to it, uh, or that you, you know, that there's some other um, uh, uncertainty. Um, it doesn't mean that um, the effect is small. I was giving a talk in Brooklyn once, at, um, and and this issue came up, and I said, well, you know, if someone said. Um, what will be the consequences of a nuclear war uh, being dropped into Brooklyn? Um, and what are we willing to pay to avoid that? You know, I think that the benefits of avoiding that would be unquantified benefits. You have no idea what would happen. You know, how many people would die? How long would the radiation stay around? Where would it like travel? You know, it's just an unthinkable thing. We don't really have economic models to do that. It hasn't been. So we would have to treat it as an unquantified, you know, that avoiding that would have to be treated as an unquantified benefit. Right. No one would say that this was a trivial benefit, a small benefit, or a speculative benefit that we should do nothing uh, to avoid it. And in fact, we do all kinds of things to avoid uh, things that can be quantified, like, you know, all of the Homeland Security uh, measures that are, have become part of our lives um, after 9-11, um, you know, are there to 
uh, deter some potentially catastrophic uh, event that we can't really uh, quantify and monetize in any real way. So, so it was kind of an effort to make these things disappear. Uh, the initial executive order talked about costs, kind of independent of benefits. Right. So it looked like the only goal was reducing the cost of regulation, regardless of, um, you know, what, <laughs> what those costs were being <laughs> spent for. So that's kind of like one of the six things we look at. I mean, I don't know if you want to run through all of them, and maybe I'll do a couple more. Well, let, let's focus on that last one, the executive order. Uh, I mean, often just referred to as the regulatory, regulatory budgeting order, the, the so-called two-for-one deal component as well, where, you know, as Trump said, two regulations had to go for every one that, 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 that came in. Um, just focusing on the, the, the limit on costs, the so-called regulatory budget. That aspect of the order didn't replace the cost benefit analysis that the, the Clinton EO remained on the books and there was cost benefit analysis requirements. But then this was a separate sort of uh, auxiliary limit on agencies, just the total cap on costs. What's the downside of adding that in addition to the cost benefit uh, requirement? I mean, I get the, the people who, who tend to favor the regulatory budget and I mean, I'll call a spade a spade. I'm usually among them. Um, tends to say, uh, tends to analogize it to the budget at home, right? Um, the benefits I might get from a new purchase might well, um, exceed the cost of that purchase, but I might not have enough money in the bank to pay for it. What's wrong with using that as a, as an adjunct or an auxiliary limit on regulation in addition to cost benefit? So. So the, the, so the executive order had a couple of components. There was the two for one component and there was the zeroed out regulatory budget. So it wasn't just a regulatory budget at all. It was one that was set at zero additional uh, net costs. So there are a couple of uh, problems with, with that approach. And the right, I just for a bit of background, the regulatory budget idea has been around for a long time. Uh, in its kind of original form, it was not intended as a, kind of a zero constraint or no net cost constraint. The idea was kind of the, along the analogy that you described, that um, rather than doing a, a regulation by regulation analysis of costs and benefits, there would be some kind of generic or overall estimate of what the, you know, what how much expenditure it would be appropriate for EPA to impose under the Clean Air Act, for example. And then the agency would be charged with uh, using those uh, those costs in the most cost-effective manner possible. Right? That was that's kind of the, the broadly the idea. So the problem there, and this is where the analogy to the household breaks down, is one is to set the budget is incredibly difficult. It makes you it forces you to undertake this task, which is what is the ideal or what is the roughly ideal amount of money for EPA to be spending or cost for EPA to be imposing. And that's just an incredibly difficult inquiry to to undertake. And I think it, that's part of the reason it never the idea never really went anywhere. And rather, under the um, under the Reagan administration, they used cost benefit analysis. They didn't do the regulatory budget because it's so much easier to say, look, this regulation are the benefits greater than the costs, or on the margins, are we maximizing that benefit? That's a tractable in- inquiry. Uh, as opposed to just across the board at an agency or under a statute or at the whole level of the, at the entirety of government, how much is the appropriate amount uh, to set the budget? Whereas at home, 
I know what your budget constraint is. It's your salary minus your taxes, you know, minus your housing costs or whatever. But you have, it's very clear what the overall amount is. And then you say, okay, how can I spend this money to maximize the happiness of me and my family, right? One other kind of uh, just part of this is the, the Trump administration set the budget at zero. So the assumption was that the status quo is the right expenditure. Right. That we're actually using, we're actually spending the right amount of money right now. And there was just kind of additionally, there was no requirement that, you know, if a regulation was going to be undone, that it, um, that the, that it imposes net costs. Uh, there wasn't even really a, a message to the agencies that they should prioritize net costly, um, regulations for rescission. And so there's kind of a variety of different problems associated with this budgeting idea and then the implementation was just a, a total mess but on your analogy to um to the to the family budget um you know i think that that analogy has some purchase in some public policy arenas so for example state governments that are that can't run deficit spending uh, they have to allocate whatever money they have to different programs and subject to this constraint and presumably it makes sense for them to allocate the money to uh, the programs that um, uh, bring the most social welfare to their citizens. And there may be other programs that might be desirable, but they've run out of money to run them, so they can't do that. Um, in the regulatory arena, you know, we're not talking about primarily about money that the government is spending. You know, these are consequences on people. So if we have an environmental regulation, um, it's going to benefit some people. Some people will be healthier. Some people will live longer. Some people will <clears throat> um, won't have to miss work days and so on. It'll hurt some people. Uh, those are the costs. You know, some people might um, end up with lower wages. Some shareholders might have um, might end up owning stock that's worth somewhat less money. Um, these are all consequences on people. And it's not clear to me why we would say that at some point we prioritize one set of consequences over the other. That is why we say, well, you know, um, they might be like, you could save lots of lives. People could be a lot healthier. But at this point, it would involve an additional unit of costs on whoever bears these regulatory costs. And we just can't go there no matter what benefits would be associated with that unit of cost. So it's not really a budget constraint. It's a comparison of impacts all on people, uh, different people. And I understand, you know, it's not, I mean, look, it, it, there are no, you know, if they were, it, it, if we knew how to regulate in ways that just produce greater improvements, we would do that, but that <laughs> can't quite be done. So anything government does, is going to have some winners and some losers. Um, and, um, and so conceptually, I think the analogy just didn't work. Right. And also, if you wanted to actually put it in its best light, you would say, well, subject to this constraint, you should do whatever regulations have the highest net benefits. But there was no real process for doing that. The executive order didn't lay it out. The agencies in implementing the executive order didn't lay it out. I mean, it was pretty clear that there wasn't much concern for what benefits might be left on the table. Um, and that was a problem. That was a huge conceptual problem. Right. One other thing just added since to, to put a fine point on the, on the kind of core issue with the regulatory budget at a conceptual level. And, I, and the point that Ricky just made about the actual implementation is really vital because 
you know, some of them, who cares about the conceptual stuff when the implementation is a total mess? But just to put a fine point on the conceptual side, there's an inverse to the regulatory budget idea, which is for the government or somebody to set uh, a level of, you know, some social goal, a level of environmental quality or consumer protection or whatever, and then just say, achieve it in the most cost effective manner possible. But so you can spend an infinite amount of money. Yeah. Right. And we don't care if it takes a trillion dollars to save a life. Yeah. And it, and, and in a way, the entire enterprise of cost benefit analysis was designed to address those, that problem with, you know, or at least especially during the Reagan years to say, Oh, we're spending too much money on the margins, uh, to, to chase small risks. And the regulatory budget's essentially the exact same, uh, conceptual it's just with the, uh, you know, from the other direction, right? So rather than yeah. setting a budget, we're setting a goal. And it's just better to, you know, take each policy on its own terms and analyze uh, the, you know, the positive and negative consequences. As you mentioned, uh, one of you mentioned a moment ago, part two of the book covers a, a wide array of, of, of problems that you saw in the way the Trump administration handling this aspect of regulation. You touch on, um, climate change. You write that the administration trivialized climate change, particularly in its, its, um, its, its negation of the previous social cost of carbon. Um, you touch on a few issues. As I was thinking through these myself, and thinking through the criticisms that were levied at the Obama administration with respect to cost-benefit analysis. And in many ways, I guess these were embodied in the Trump administration's approach. I saw I saw basically four categories. Um, one was just fights over the accuracy of a given cost-benefit analysis, right? Even if everybody shared the same basic premises, there's going to be disagreement about that. And someone's going to be, I mean, as a matter of objective fact, someone's going to be right, someone's going to be wrong, um, or someone will be closer to the truth than, than the others, but just an argument over accuracy. Um, the second one, which I, you touch on um, in ignoring indirect benefits, was this debate over indirect benefits, or sometimes they're called co-benefits, right? This idea that uh, the argument, I, I guess the, the example of it would be uh, the Obama administration would promulgate a regulation on air quality. Maybe it's focused on on, on climate, on uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, a significant amount of the benefits might come from reductions in particulate matter. And critics would say, wait a second, the statute is directing you to regulate this, yet it's not cost beneficial with respect to that pollutant. You sh- the statute implicitly precludes you from looking at these other uh, benefits. We'll, we'll get back to that in just a moment. But but sometimes with cost-benefit analysis, it was arguments about legal limits. And then, of course, there are the statutes where we'd argue either prohibits cost-benefit analysis, it requires it, uh, or so on. Um, so there's accuracy, legal limits. The third would be under the bucket of transparency, accountability, um, critics would say that the, 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 the factual substance of the agency record was, uh, was not sufficiently transparent. Oftentimes they'd complain about the reliance on academic studies and, or scientific studies that weren't generally available. Um, so you saw the current, for now, current administration speak in terms of transparency, limit the kinds of scientific materials that would be available to the agency. So the arguments are accuracy, legal limits, transparency. And then the last one I would just call certainty, uh, which is even if we can agree generally on the premises, even regarding the facts, well, no, not the facts, that's what I'm getting at, but even if we can re- agree on the basic framework, 
the legal framework, transparency. We'll never know for certain what the real cost benefit, the end of the equation is. And so there was a, there would be the argument that in the face of some uncertainty, uh, we ought to defer on the side of, of restraining government, right? Before government asserts sovereign power over, over all of us, that it ought to have a certain degree of, of certainty, so to speak. And they'd argue that we just don't know enough. Now, that's a laundry list there, but that's sort of what I sort of think of as the four categories of criticisms that were levied against the Obama administration and embodied in the Trump administration. I don't expect you to sort of touch on all of them since I threw them at you like a shotgun spray, but um, if there's any in particular, maybe starting with co-benefits um, that, you, sure. that you'd want to touch on. Well, just for starters, um, I mean, the Trump administration doesn't actually have a consistent or defensible position on co-benefits under any sort of conception of what the proper role of co-benefits and regulatory analysis is. So, for example, um, in the mercury toxic standards, which is um, where there, you know, there were large co-benefits in terms of particulate matter reduction, as you've mentioned, Adam, they take a strong position that the consideration of co-benefits for determining whether the regulation of uh, the hazardous air pollutant emissions of power plants is inappropriate. On the other hand, in the car standards, they rely exclusively on co-benefits in justifying their rollback of the car standards because um, from EPA's perspective, the benefits are um, greenhouse gas reductions. From NHTSA's perspective, the partner in this regulatory proceeding, it's um, fuel savings. Uh, EPA doesn't have a safety jurisdiction. Car safety is not even something EPA can like deal with. Uh, NHTSA does have a car safety jurisdiction, but it's under a different statute. So under the statutes that led to the regulation that was being um, weakened by the Trump administration, these asserted safety benefits, if they existed at all, there are all kinds of like empirical questions about the asserted safety benefits. But take them at their word that there were safety benefits in the rollback. Those are exclusively co-benefits. And they let co-benefits do all of their work uh, in the rollback to the car standards. They stand in the way of considering co-benefits uh, in connection with regulation of uh, hazardous air pollutant emissions of power plants. So the bottom line is this is the Trump administration's approach to co-benefits. We will embrace them if they support the regulation. We will oppose them if they support the regulation. We'll take whatever side of this argument supports the regulation. We won't even feel any obligation to acknowledge the inconsistency. Okay, so this is the position. We can now, having put that aside, we can have an intelligent conversation about the limits of co-benefits, but that is not really a conversation involving anything the Trump administration did. It's a kind of a interesting academic conversation, but it's like on the sidelines of the Trump administration's regulatory policies. Yeah. Well, I, um, we, I don't want to go too far into, into speculation then, given that it's just an hour-long podcast. So what, <laughs> what about some of the other, the other ones? Um, earlier, you said something struck me when you, you mentioned Mitt Romney. You said, uh, given his background in business, his reliance on economic models, which certainly worked well for him in his, in yes, his, for his, sure. in his, in his you know, home budget, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I, you know, as you mentioned that, it occurred to me that the difference there was that Romney and, and Bain Capital, all of them, they were playing with their own money, win or lose, right? That they would bear the, the, the downside of, of, of losing. 
The difference with government, I suppose, is that the ones who are making the calculations aren't necessarily bearing the benefits and the cost ultimately. And so I assume they were investors in bank capital. Right. Well, that's true. Really just money his, his own personal right. bank account. Yeah. And his fair point. Right. Right. No, that's a fair point. But but he had skin in the game. Right. Um, so so yeah. the way you the way you characterize it was a kind of a, a thumb on the scale. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. So so let me just I, I think part of what's a, a fun strategy in these um, these debates is to kind of put the argument in the other side's mouth and see how how it lands when you when you do it that way. Right. So the way I interpret the, the, that kind of, that thumb on the scale is very close cousins to what's referred to as the precautionary principle sometimes. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And so, so you could say it's kind of like a libertarian precautionary principle that when we're not sure about what the effects are going to be, then, um, or, or we only move forward when we know that the effects are going to be good or something like that. And the, the issue there is, it's just going to run afoul of all of the problems that the precautionary principles had, principle has. And again, it's the reason why um, the precaution principle in the United States certainly isn't particularly influential. It doesn't provide really guidance um, in real concrete cases. Um, it can be paralyzing. So you could say that the government should do no harm. Maybe that's the, the libertarian version. Well, let's take GMO regulation. Is the government doing, might it do harm by allowing GMOs? Might it do harm by funding GMOs? Yeah, like it could kind of do harm no matter what it does, act or fail to act. And so the problem is that it's, that the principle is paralyzing. Cass Sunstein has written about this. And of course, you know, for environmentalists, they, they have a kind of a thumb on the scale that they'd like to use. Nature, maybe anytime we unsettle the natural order or something like that. Libertarians have their thumb on the scale. Social justice advocates have their thumb on the scale. We all have our thumbs that we'd like to put on the scale in various ways. And when you get everybody's thumbs on the scale, it turns out they just kind of cancel each other out. And maybe we should do cost benefit analysis. And so, um, so in any case, I think that what, what I find illuminating, um, when considering these kinds of issues is, to, to take myself and my own personal kind of biases, prejudices, and inclinations out of the picture and imagine, well, what if, it's kind of Kantian, what if everybody thinks along these lines, where does that get us? Yeah. Um, I, we only have a few minutes left, and I, I really want to do justice to the last part of the book, because uh, the book com- concludes with, uh, as, you, as you call it, improving the guardrails, right? And an agenda looking forward for ways in which, based on the last couple of decades experience and based on improvements in, in analytic techniques and everything else, um, what a future administration might do. Now, of course, you wrote this book before the presidential elections. We're now recording this a week after. Um, barring any shocking surprises, um, uh, President Biden or President-elect Biden's victory is going to carry through to the inauguration, um, and suddenly there'll be a, a new administration in a position to take a new look at things. So, how would you improve the guide rails and you, guardrails? And, and do you have any uh, any a- advice or, or hopes for the the incoming administration in these respects? Yes, I think we on on these cost benefit issues, the incoming administration. Um, has its work cut out for it. And so first, it has to remove the underbrush of these um, really offensive um, 
approaches of the Trump administration. For example, this sort of, you know, inconsistency around co-benefits that I referred to earlier. And that's probably one of at least half a dozen things of equal magnitude. And some of these will end up being embodied in regulations. The administration, the Trump administration is threatening to uh, still finalize a rule on uh, cost-benefit analysis for air regulations, which is kind of where a lot of work is being done. They're still threatening to um, uh, finalize the the so the, their so-called science transparency rule, which is essentially an effort to um, <clears throat> to erase um, well-conducted epidemiological studies that have gone through peer review and have gone through actually uh, third-party review um, under rules that would make epidemiological studies impossible because no one's going to actually submit to them if they have to make all their health information available on some public website where it will live forever. So um, so all that underbrush, um, some of which will be, might be uh, embodied in rules that will have to get repealed for notice and comment rulemaking. So that'll have to be done. You have to sort of clear the deck of all of this really pernicious stuff so you can be back in a position, in the position you were before the Trump administration. That'll involve a fair amount of work. The second thing is uh, on, on that, Ricky. Can I just ask you a question about that, just to jump in? Sure. Um, yesterday, yesterday, I, I was on a Federal Society panel with the aforementioned Sally Katzen, and yeah. she talked to, in similar terms about clearing out the underbrush. And I said, you know, the Clinton administration didn't completely get rid of the Reagan EO on cost benefit analysis. Um, I'm sure the the the, the it's most likely the the Biden administration will get rid of the regulatory um, budget or regulatory cap order. But I said, what about an approach of distrust but verify? Uh, just uh, let's pause and see how that order actually performed um, and then decide whether or not to sweep it away. Is there anything to be said for that? There's a lot to be said for that. But from my perspective, I've verified this and I gave you one example, yeah. you know, like co-benefits. I'll give you another one just quickly. Um, transfer payments. Transfer payments are generally kept out of cost-benefit analysis. Someone pays money, someone gets the money. It's considered a wash. If there are like incentive effects, those are considered. Trump administration has made use of transfers as part of the cost-benefit analysis. So for example, when they wanted to lower royalties paid by coal companies on federal lands, they said the benefits of that rule were the savings to the coal companies. Not realizing, of course, that the savings to the coal companies were matched by lower receipts by the federal treasury, which to which they attach absolutely no, uh, no significance. Yeah. In other cases, when they... Um, um, weakened uh, the protection for borrowers, uh, student borrowers who are defrauded by uh, uh, for-profit institutions. Uh, they said that the benefits of that were savings to the federal treasury. Not realizing, of course, that on the other side of those savings to the federal treasury where these defrauded borrowers weren't going to get the money. Not realizing either that in one case they took savings to the treasury as a benefit in the student borrower case. And in the other case, the coal royalties case, they took... Um, um, shortfalls to the federal treasury to actually be the benefit because they actually only looked at the other side of the coal companies. All of this stuff is not, you know, is not really like debatable. It's not part, you know, if someone wrote this in an exam, they would get an F no matter who the professor was, if the professor was liberal or conservative in the middle, it just wouldn't matter. It would just yeah. be seen as just outside of the bounds. All of that stuff, look, some of that stuff they just did in some proceeding and maybe doesn't matter, but some of it is going to be is embodied in notice and comment rulemakings, and getting rid of that stuff is going to be difficult. It's going to be yeah. a project. Yep. 
There might be other things. I'm not saying that every single action the Trump administration did should be set aside. You know, part of the turkeys for Thanksgiving. I don't think we want to, like, you know, take that back on the poor turkeys. I think that's totally fine. We should accept that. Uh, and there are probably other things like that uh, that should also <laughs> be kept in place. But in the areas of this book, there is very yeah. little that should be kept in place. Yeah, I think that yeah. part of this is a consequence of the Trump administration's rejection of a, you know, 40 years long bipartisan consensus. So you're right that in prior transitions, the basic process has been to leave the structure in place and build on it. And there's a lot to be said from that for that. It, 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 it's it's more predictable. Um, there's there's a reliance interest involved. Um, a lot of efforts in Republican and Democratic administrations were good faith attempts to come to terms with these difficult questions. And people might have disagreements, but it often makes more sense to just look forward than consistently relitigate the the past. But the Trump administration is just different than other administrations in this way. They didn't take that approach. They threw out the bathwater, the baby, the house, the it all went out the window. And, you know, you got to go go into the yard now and like bring it back in. And I think the assumption should be like it comes back in the house unless there's a really good reason to think that they made, a, a, you know, a considered judgment when, it, when they threw it out the window. And so that's the first step. I mean, let me yeah. quickly tell you the next two steps. Sure, please. Then there, there's going to have to be an effort to modernize the elements of cost-benefit analysis. A lot of this is embodied in Circular A4, which dates back to the Bush administration in 2003. That's a very good document. It survived for 17 years, as it should have. But some of the stuff is just kind of it's gotten old. <laughs> and um, and so, it, I mean, the economic, economic uh, knowledge has evolved. Market conditions are different. There was kind of a time of much higher interest rates that has an impact and how one thinks about discounting and so on. So I think the, the second element that a new administration would have to tackle is the modernization element. Kind of just bring this, you know, two decades later, we just need to look at it. I mean, and that's not by any means something we want to like change wholesale. I think for the most part, that's a system that's worked well. I think Circuit A4 probably should remain in um, uh, much the same form as it's now, but but certain pieces of it just need to be brought up to date. Um, to reflect um, uh, developments in um, scientific understanding and in market conditions. And the third issue is, you know, the new administration is coming into office at a time of, you know, great um, focus on issues of justice and equity. And, well, you know, the Clinton executive order said that uh, distributional issues should be considered alongside the cost-benefit analysis. And the Clinton administration had an executive order on environmental justice, and the Obama administration has an additional order on um, on dignity and equity. Um, none of this has amounted to anything. Uh, the analysis is not done. We don't even have like good techniques for doing that. If someone actually wanted to do a serious analysis of the distributional consequence of regulation, it would be unclear how it would be done. There's no consensus. There's nothing in Circular A4, for example, that would give agencies any guidance on that. And given the, you know, sort of appropriate um, priority that the Biden administration has placed on these issues, we need analytical work to catch up with this political commitment. And um, 
And it's not a new concept, as I indicated. It's been around since at least 1993 as a, as a significant idea. We just have not done a good job in implementing it. And I think now, because of the political forces is, that are bringing this administration into office, there's going to have to be um, more of an effort. So I would say those are the three big challenges for cost-benefit analysis that the Biden administration will bring, um, you know, bring to office. And Mike, uh, early in the conversation, you you kind of uh, bookmarked the point on employment. Um, should we return to that before we finish up? How does that fit into all this? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a great point. Um, now that unemployment is back up from the from the quite low uh, unemployment rates that we saw just you know not that many months ago, um, it's it's likely that concerns about employment will figure into at least some regulatory decisions. Now, I think there's some there's a lot of uncertainty here. It's very it's it's one I certainly hope that. Once the pandemic is brought under control and the economy can get back on its feet, that unemployment will 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 drop, hopefully dramatically or at least on some reasonable timeline, so that um, it, it won't be a kind of overwhelming issue. But of course, there's uncertainty in the, in the other direction, and and the kind of economic fallout from the pandemic could be much longer lasting, and we could be facing a, a period of time where there's going to be real structural unemployment. Um, if that's true, I think that um, efforts to incorporate employment and jobs into cost-benefit analysis are useful. Now, I have a caveat to that, which is uh, most work that's been done on the effects of regulation on employment has shown that the effects are small and tend to work in both directions and wash out, that regulations sometimes generate uh, the need for hiring. Uh, sometimes generate, uh, uh, there are layoffs associated with regulations. Um, but again, these things tend to t- cancel each other out. And most of the effects in terms of employment are distributional, is what Ricky was just talking about, rather than kind of having an aggregate uh, effect on unemployment. And those distributional effects are important to consider. Uh, but it's also worth, because there's going to be a lot of focus on jobs, ensuring that um, you know, you can convince a skeptical Congress and a skeptical public that the regulatory system is not making things any worse and, and could even be spurring job growth in some sectors. Now, we couldn't possibly do justice to the entire book in, in one podcast. And so I really encourage our listeners, after they've finished the podcast, go buy the book and read it. But before we go, I'd like to give uh, both of you just a chance for a, a final word. Um, maybe we'll start with, with Ricky. I just want to thank you, Adam. I thought this was a tremendously um, interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, you do such a nice job uh, running these podcasts. Uh, and thank you so much for bringing attention to these issues. Um, I think they're really important. Um, um, the future of the regulatory state, to some extent, um, depends on how these issues get worked out in the coming years. Um, and um, and you've illuminated um, our, our book significantly through this discussion. So thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure, Ricky. Thanks for joining us. And, and Mike, any last words? Yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to the next few years um, in an improvement in the level of discourse around these issues. I think that's something we can all be optimistic for, uh, that uh, the, the level of the conversation and the civility of the conversation is going to prove even not, whatever the policy fallout is, the policy consequences are, it would be nice to be able to engage with folks across the political spectrum in a, in a productive way.
Well, thanks, Mike. And thanks to you two for joining us. Again, the book is titled Reviving Rationality, Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of the Environment and Our Health. The authors are Michael Livermore and Richard Revez. We've been lucky uh, to have them as our guests today. And thanks to all of you for joining in today and listening. Please join us again for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. 